1: Just a quick note before we get started, we had some major technical difficulties this week, mercury and retrograde and all that. So the audio quality in the initial conversation and the last bit are a bit lower than what we'd like to bring you, but we thought they were still worth putting out. Thanks for bearing with us. Now on to the show. Hey, hotcakes. Welcome to Hot Take. I'm Amy Westervelt.
0: And I'm Mariana E. Spiegler. Amy, is it just me or is there more crazy climate news every single
1: week? Oh my God. It's definitely not just you. I feel like it's like just waves and waves and waves and like my head is going to explode. It's too much.
0: I know. Remember when you used to look forward to summer because it was like summer fun and now it's like summer disasters everywhere. It's true. And it's it's not even like kicked in the high gear yet.
1: In your part of the country, what have you been seeing lately, Mary?
0: Well, there was talk of an early hurricane like this past weekend in the Gulf of Mexico Mm. wound up not actually happening. And turns out that would be the first time in the past seven years that we're not likely to get a named storm before June. Wow. In a way, that's a little bit promising. But I was kind of like, really? It's not even Memorial Day and we're talking about a storm? Because like, normally when a storm forms in May... We're not talking about this far north. You're talking about like in the Caribbean, uh. which is not not fantastic, but yeah, you're not talking about it in like Florida or Louisiana. So there was a, a disturbance in the Gulf yesterday, but it it was not a hurricane, it was not even a tropical depression. Um, but that does not mean anything as far as the rest of the hurricane season goes. Like mm-hmm. we're still bracing for a quite active season and it's also happening when people are still you know, living in temporary housing or in tents or with relatives from the 2020 hurricane season, not oh, just Hurricane Ida last year, right? So like folks out in, in Lake Charles have still not gotten the help that they need. Ugh. And now we're already bracing for yet another hurricane season. They're talking about the, the waters and the Gulf are about set to be like the 2005 hurricane season, which oh, gave us no. Katrina and Rita. So yeah, we're on edge. We're on yeah. alert. You know, if you're able to pack a supply bag and have your, you know, evacuation plan ready, time to make sure you got your rent insurance up to date and, mm-hmm. and, and all of that stuff. So yeah, get your that's, go bag that's what's ready. happening out here. Oh. How's it going out there on the West coast?
1: Yeah, we've got, um, we've got our go bags ready for a different reason, which is mega droughts and fire season. <laughs> it's, yeah. And of course mm-hmm. in, um, New Mexico, I mean, they're just getting absolutely hammered right now with four active large fires that have burned almost half a million acres, including a lot of sacred sites. There's a lot of of sacred land in New Mexico that, that these fires have impacted. Thousands of people have been evacuated. I believe it's one person who's died so far, but... You know, these fires, I think the one that's most contained is at about 40% still, which is not, you want it like over 50 before you start to feel like they're starting to get under control. And the the sort of icing on the cake here is that these fires started in part from a controlled burn, which is like oh, God.
0: Mm. What is a control burn actually? I don't know what that is. Yeah,
1: so so basically it's a it's a forest management technique, you know, in part because humans as we've built more into wilderness have interrupted the fire cycle because we're not comfortable with fire, right? Like even a tiny bit of fire is scary to us, so we put out even the smallest fires. That interrupts the mm. whole you know, forest ecosystem, really, because forests naturally burn a little bit every year to get rid of a certain amount of brush. And, you know, it's, it's actually what keeps a forest healthy.
0: I did not know that. Like, I've heard people say that in passing, but like, I've never really internalized that forests naturally burn. Yeah. You know, like I've heard of carbon cycle, water cycle. I've never heard of a fire cycle. Yeah. There's
1: a natural fire cycle that's been really interrupted by fear, really, (laughs) you know,
0: Mm. fear and
1: also um, the desire to protect property. So
0: that has interrupted. But Indigenous folks were not afraid of that.
1: That's right. So Indigenous folks have always kind of allowed this cycle to continue. And just now in the last couple of years, there's been a real push to kind of let indigenous practices inform how the, the Western states deal with fire in general. But because we've kind of interrupted these things, in order to approximate that, the USDA will do these prescribed burns where they will go in and they will burn off a certain amount of the like dead brush and new saplings and things like that. Because otherwise, you end up with too much what they call fuel for the fire, which is basically like brush and lots of little trees and things that would have yeah. normally been cleared by kind of regular forest fires. Yeah. So that's what they were doing in New Mexico um and I mean it wasn't the only thing that got these fires going but it did it it did contribute to it. And so now there's this backlash against prescribed burning, which is sort of, it's sort of just restarting this whole fear of fire thing that, that is kind of at the root of the megafires in the West in the first place, along with, of course, drought conditions, um, right. climate change exacerbating not only heat, but also dryness, which are all kind of factors for for fires and poor development choices where you're allowing building in areas that, that didn't historically have it. So just kind of seeing this every year. And I feel like it's like a different state's turn every year in the West right now. So like, you know, really? Cause I feel like all of them all be burning. It, yeah. But it kind of rotates. It's like, you know, California and Oregon, then Colorado, now New Mexico. I'm worried about what will happen in California this year because it's, it's, it's yes, extremely sure. dry. We've had, we have our worst drought that we've had in 1200 years right now. It just like, didn't really snow, yeah. didn't really rain this year. So it just it's again that bracing thing I think I think that's like a thing for um for states that are prone to sort of annual extreme weather events at this point where like it just starts to get to be around this time of year and it's kind of the same for both fire and hurricane anymore and you start to really brace for um for the next impact. thing yeah yeah, yeah it's stressful for
0: impact um, I was uh, reading a story. I, I didn't finish it, so I won't spoil it for you. Mm-hmm. But it was about the climate refugees from Campfire, mm-hmm. and it was you know I remember when Campfire horrified the country. It was like this you know huge huge fire, and it burnt down this entire town named Paradise. Yeah. and but now Campfire isn't even in the top ten uh, worst biggest fires in California's history. I think it's the deadliest. So far, I think, I think it um, but might still
1: be in the top ten of largest, but it's not the it's so, not the largest anymore.
0: But the story was like blaming PG and E as the cause, the, right. the utility in California, blaming them as the cause of the fire. And I was, I was meaning to ask you about that. Like, I understand that their negligence definitely like started the fire, Mm -hmm. but the conditions that made it right for it to burn as long as it did and as bad as it did, that's climate change. And as a utility of course PG&E had a hand in that but they didn't do all of it
1: yeah i mean it's a it's a mix i mean this is the thing i think this is the thing that makes the fire conversation so fraught in general is just that like it's a mix of things always you know it's like yes the utility has been allowed to be totally negligent with its maintenance for a really long time um and they kind of just keep not addressing that, you know, it's like they get fined for something and they pay the fine and they keep doing the same thing because they're incentivized by profit. You know, it's the, we have this weird thing where it's like it's supposedly a public service, but it's it's a private utility and they have a profit motive um, that is out of step with the public service that they're providing. So that shows up not just in maintenance of lines, but also in you know, not necessarily moving as quickly as they should on the energy transition. Cause that's another thing that right. utilities are partly responsible for, you know? Yeah. Um, and then also there's, there's the development question, you know, of, of allowing things to be built where they probably shouldn't be and zoning that, that encourages sprawl instead of more dense development that makes more sense, you know? And, uh, forest management, so this whole fire thing that we were talking about. And then on top of that, you have this layer of climate change that is is intensifying and exacerbating all of those things, you know, where it's like it's a lot more likely for a downed power line to spark a fire because there's a drought which is exacerbated by climate change you know or because there's high heat and then in terms mm-hmm. of like the way that they they kind of grow now that is really it's very hard to point to anything but climate change on that mm-hmm. because the, like what you yeah. hear even from firefighters is like it doesn't cool down at night anymore and the humidity doesn't increase at night anymore and that is when they would yeah. always get on top of those fires. So that's what's contributing to the size of these things. That's just like insane. It's crazy. Of course, elsewhere in the world, there is plenty of bad news on the extreme weather front too. In South Africa, these rain bombs that have been happening. Mm -hmm. So this, I think the first one was in 2017. It happened again in 2019. Last month, There was one of these extreme rain events in Durban, South Africa, that actually killed 300 people. And I I swear I did not hear a single news story here about it. Yeah, They got like a foot of rain in less than 24 hours. It's when they get like a couple months worth of rain in one day. That almost sounds like a hurricane. It does. It does. But it like it lacks, I guess, like the wind... A factor of a hurricane. It's just like the sky yeah. opens up and it's a deluge. That is terrifying. It is terrifying. And especially when you think about Durban, and this is again, I'm like, oh God, there's so many examples of these things happening where lots of different societal issues collide, right? So you have this rain and it's falling in a city where there's intense poverty. It's washing away like entire slums, which people shouldn't be forced to live in those conditions in the first place, but then you add an extreme weather event on top of it. And like you were saying about the folks at Lake Charles that, you know, they're sitting there in a temporary shelter. That's not at all ready for another extreme weather event. So, yeah. So anyway, yeah, these things are happening. They're going to continue to happen. And unfortunately they're, they're happening on top of, you know, lots of other issues like, you know, wave number 200 of the pandemic and monkeypox and right. wealth inequality and all of these other things. So,
0: right. And yeah. there are so many other extreme weather events going on around the world, too. Like, I don't I want to create the impression that we captured all of them in this couple of minutes. Right. Like, there's so many of them are undercovered around the world. Right. And also, so many of them have become normalized around the world. Right. So, yeah, shit is real. That's the That's that's the underlying. That's point right. Here.
1: That's right. And like we mentioned last week, another thing that all of that contributes to is the rise of ecofascism. So it does. Yeah, we saw this with the Buffalo shooter. Um, And before that, with the Christchurch and El Paso shooters back in 2019, this is a thing that is not going away. As more extreme weather events happen, as resources like water become more scarce, people are doubling down on ideas about who deserves and doesn't deserve those resources. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, uh, it's, it's turning up all over the map. And you and I both wrote about this in the newsletter this past weekend. Yeah, And, you know, you made the point that like, yeah, this, this is someone who believes the science on climate change, but their solution is, you know, to kill black and brown people. So exactly. Yeah.
0: Cause that's, that's what happens when you understand the problem but you don't understand the causes that's right. or the solutions. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's it's such a seductive narrative to scapegoat someone else for all of your problems. Mm-hmm. And that's really what ecofascism does. It's like a livable future but only for white people. Right. Right. And there used to be this assumption on the left that once people on the right wing came around to the reality of climate change, of course they would get on board with, you know solutions like the green new deal or like a carbon tax and sweetie that is not where folks are going to take it because these are folks who wanted to kill black and brown people before there was a a real scarcity right the great replacement theory made up a a scarcity mentality a long time ago Mm -hmm. so that just like general white supremacy like yeah so now you give give an actual scarcity to it and yeah yeah. This is where
1: we wind up. That's right. And and I think it's important, too, to note that, like, it's very tempting to want to put these into s- sort of handy existing left and right boxes. And yeah. what we're seeing, and this, again, came up in the context of the Buffalo shooting as well, is that there are lots of people who identify, self-identify as being socialist or communist or anarchist or left or
0: free thinkers
1: thinkers who also are are very attracted to you know these ideas of fascism and white supremacy there's there's like this real kind of nexus of folks who just kind of generally consider themselves anti-establishment and are not necessarily like pro-Trump or anti-Trump, or, you know, it's like, they're sort of bound by this idea of themselves as being, yeah, anti-establishment, like radical free thinkers. And the things that they have in common are not necessarily a political party, but the idea that fascism is a solution. Yeah. A lot of problems. And It's very, it's scary because like, I don't know. I think these categories and labels that have been kind of handy shorthand for a long time don't necessarily apply to all of these situations.
0: I read an article this weekend about um, how did Gen X become the Trumpiest yes. generation. Yes. Um, no shade to present company. I know you're a baby Gen X. I am.
1: I am. It's true. Yes. But,
0: you know, it, I think it's something to, to think about and to talk about that yeah. Gen X, according to polls, which you know how I feel about polls, take them or leave them. Mm-hmm. But the polls indicate that, that Gen X cares the least about the environment out of all of the generations, less than the Boomers, less than even the silent generation. Way Less than the millennials and the and, and Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. What do you have to say for yourself?
1: <laughs> I know. I was totally, <laughs> I was scouring that article for a line that said it was mostly the the older Gen Xers um that feel that way. <laughs> not not us like Xennials. Um but yeah, I mean I think, you know, again, it's this like this idea of, oh, I'm not conservative or liberal i'm anti-establishment i'm an individual right. thinker i just i think that like actually there's so much of that that lends itself to kind of weirdly to kind of like fashy cultist ideology you know yeah <laughs> because it's okay. like oh no i'm just thinking for myself and i'm just i just think that this i'm willing to listen to any idea and even if it like, you know, offends me on some level, I'll still listen to it. And that makes me, you know, smart and and free thinking. And I, I think that was definitely a thing in Gen X, the idea of like, I'm not voting for the party, I'm voting for the individual. And I think has has made it possible for a lot of Gen X people who probably thought, think of themselves as anti-establishment to be very into Trump because he he has branded himself as that. Right. I mean, yeah.
0: I kind of feel like in order to really care about the climate, you have to let yourself get vulnerable. You have to let yourself get emotional. mm -hmm. And there is, you know, in, in Gen X, like what they're known for is apathy. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, not being emotional at all, which is actually very dangerous because every human being is emotional. Right. And if you don't allow yourself to be in touch with your emotions, that means that like you just don't that doesn't mean you're not emotional. It means you just don't have emotional intelligence. That's right. And that means that like you can easily be manipulated by a demagogue or a cult. Mm-hmm. Because you don't know how to recognize your own emotions. I'm saying all of this because clearly I want to get bad reviews. You want all those Gen
1: Xers to be like, fuck
0: you, Barry. Right. Yeah. I know what happens when you talk about Gen Xers, right? Like they get very defensive and very sensitive and at the exact same time, like think their feelings are facts because they don't know what feelings are. Yeah. So whatever. Come at me, bro. Whatever.
1: (laughs) I have to say, as a Gen X person, I definitely remember it being treated as like lame to have feelings for sure. Like as though that's not a part of being a human, you know, and, um, you know, of course, like there were lots of things behind that. And, you know, we're not going to get into a whole long conversation about the context in which Gen X grew up, but yeah, all of the research right now is showing that, my generation is less inclined to give a shit about the environment than um than other generations and honestly i feel like that might be reflective of this like defensiveness that you mentioned mary and like the being out of touch with feelings too because you know i think we we don't like to feel implicated you know mm-hmm. and we also mm-hmm. like to kind of align ourselves with with like the oppressed too like hey we didn't have it easy you know we had to deal with x you mean play and... the victim yes exactly exactly so i think it plays into that <laughs> that's not too. aligning with
0: the oppressed that is just like
1: embracing victimhood <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: exactly like oh you had it bad we had it worse. we it. had it
1: bad you know <laughs> right yeah anyway gen x get it together i say this with love as a fellow gen xer we can do better <laughs> you know? yeah
0: our reviews are about to take
1: it's true speaking of shitty gen x people scott morrison voted out in australia resoundingly <laughs> bye scomo goodbye
0: Ooh, i i know that must have been hard for you because he was really your your hero
1: My climate bay. My favorite um, Scott Morrison story is is about the time when um, his country was being engulfed by fire and he decided to go to Hawaii to get away from the smoke.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. My favorite was when um, I don't know that everybody who's like not deep in climate world knows, remembers how bad the Australia fires were. They were so bad. The whole fucking continent.
1: Yes. I read this stat about the f- the smoke during that fire, that the smoke plume was so large that it was the size of the entire continent of Europe. Mm,
0: yeah. Yeah. I like, remember. Whoa. I also remember like people who were expecting babies yeah. were going to their doctors and being like, so should I get induced or like, what should I do? Because I don't know if my baby is safer in my womb breathing the the smoke through my lungs, or if they'd be safer out of my lungs, oh, not breathing the God,
1: smoke. God, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. And
0: like, planes couldn't land because of the fires. Like, it, it was really, really dangerous. Yeah. And he's out here telling children, you know, I just feel bad for the kids because they don't realize that it's always been this way.
1: Yes, that's right. And people are like, are you
0: fucking, like he tried to normalize it. And I think what a lot of folks uh, don't quite realize is that Australia is where Rupert Murdoch is from Mm -hmm. and the misinformation in Australia.
1: Yep. It's is extreme. It is very, very extreme. Yeah. Yeah. We actually have a a reporter there for the other climate show I do, drilled, and she has mm-hmm. been doing a bunch of stuff on the ground there. And she was she she was talking to me recently about how she's like, you know, on top of the fact that because of Rupert Murdoch, our libel laws are really like stacked in favor of like corporations and rich people who don't like. Journalists saying mean things about them, you know, or being critical of them at all. So, you know, there's the fear of a lawsuit. But she said also, if you do a story that somehow implicates Murdoch or his many holdings, um, or just goes against his political ideology, that like there's a very real chance that you will be massively smeared in all of his media outlets. (laughs) So, she's like, you know, people have to really weigh the potential consequences climate reporting, and it's had a major chilling effect on climate reporting there. However, Mm -hmm. this election, uh, hands down, was a climate election, like not Mm -hmm. just in terms of the prime minister, but there were members of both parties who have either been anti-climate action or just very slow on it that got booted for climate candidates. So there was a like resounding mandate from the public for the government to actually take this seriously and do something, which is a big deal, because this was the first election since the bushfires in 2019, 2020. So, um, you know, despite Mm -hmm. all of the efforts to normalize it and to lock down press coverage and convince people that, you know, burning more coal and expanding into gas and all these things are, are the way to go, the Australian people are not having it. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens.
0: They're pretty much a petro state, aren't they?
1: Oh, yeah. They're massive. Um, Actually, just before the U.S. knocked them out of first place recently, they were the world's largest exporter of gas. Mm. They're also one of the top producers of coal. So, yeah, very much captured by the fossil fuel interests and and actually probably have a worse media ecosystem than we do, which is really saying something <laughs> on That's climate. That's terrifying. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so everything kind of sucks and feels pretty precarious at the moment. Um, so this week's episode is all about something we've both been distracting ourselves with lately. That's right.
1: It's called Bad Vegan on Netflix. <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> is there really such a thing as a good
1: vegan? Not in media, there isn't. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Um, side note, I do want to note that there is uh, way more climate and environment related content in the documentary universe in general, I think, lately. We talked about the documentary Youth V. Gov recently. There's the PBS series Power of Big Oil. There's this Bad Vegan series on Netflix. hmm
0: and you're in a doc series coming out soon called Black Gold, all about Exxon's move to hide and spin climate science, even
1: after their own
0: researchers did a bunch of it.
1: That's right. It's actually out now on Paramount Plus, and I don't know if I should be proud or embarrassed of this, but I am the only one cursing throughout the whole thing.
0: <laughs> my, my <kid>. Well, <laughs> I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that there are so many of these things and especially love this Bad Vegan series cuz it feels like this sort of guilty pleasure true crime kind of binge but it also gives us a good reason to talk about veganism and how it's portrayed in the media especially since veganism is often touted as a climate solution and it yes. is one of the biggest things you can do as an individual is to to go vegan or to eat more plant-based meals it is a good thing to do and it, it can be quite delicious some of our new listeners might not know this but I am vegan and I have been for about 12 years and I never really see anything in the media that matches my views on veganism
1: which is too bad because as a non-vegan I love all of your takes on this stuff i <laughs> it <I'm> really interesting <laughs> Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I, I'm a vegan who loves dunking on vegans. <laughs> yes, <it's home. laughs> and I still think a vegan cooking competition, or even just like a vegan show, or vegan cooking show, would be great, even for non-vegans.
1: I would totally watch it because I think sometimes the thing that makes me go to other types of things more easily in the kitchen is just is just because like I don't necessarily know how to cook vegan, mm-hmm. so getting some tips would be great. Today we're joined by a cool formerly vegan, now vegetarian lady, Alicia Kennedy.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to her. You and our producer, Ray rave about her newsletter, and I know it's got vegan recipes, too. But also, she wrote this great piece about bad vegans. So not to give too much away, but the series follows this woman who co-founded a really popular, successful raw vegan restaurant in New York, The show follows the whole series of terrible decisions this woman (laughs) made, a little bit gullible, um, and the effects those decisions had on her employees, which she's actually not that bad of a vegan, but she's not a great business owner. Alicia wrote about how actually the restaurant at the center of it all, Pure Food and Wine, had this major impact on food culture in ways most people probably don't know about, and I know I didn't.
1: Yeah, totally. I feel like she's the perfect person to join this conversation about our our guilty pleasure binge watch here.
0: Yes. And I promise this is not a vegan shaming conversation. No. Like vegans and non-vegans alike should feel pretty comfortable listening to this conversation. Right. So without any further ado, let's get to it. It's time to talk about climate right after the break.
1: spend an average of 90% of their time indoors, which is bad news because according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. In some cases, it could be a hundred times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths around the world. I have a strange little problem in my neck of the woods, and that is that everybody likes to burn their garden trash and other trash too. Lots of trash burning going on in my neighborhood. Not great. Air Doctor has really, really helped. I just fire it up on days when I can tell everybody's lighting their trash fires and it keeps the household air clean. Air Doctor is the air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, Money, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold, so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DRILLED to get up to 39% off or up to $300 off depending on the model. Lock this special offer in by going to AIRDOCTORPRO.com
2: and use the promo code DRAW. This holiday season, get
1: a gift And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40% for 4-0, 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Alicia Kennedy,
3: welcome to Hot Take. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, we're excited to talk to you. Uh, So first, I'm curious, did you ever eat at Pure Food and Wine when it was around?
3: I did. And I actually also staged in the kitchen for one shift while the Hmm. controversy was happening. Like, Sarma had disappeared and the people who worked there were trying to keep it open. And I applied for a job to run the production at One Lucky Duck, which was the like yeah. the, the juice bar. And mm-hmm. I was gonna, I wanted to work in the production kitchen in the Pfizer building because I really wanted to quit my magazine job. And so I stodged in the pastry kitchen for one day there, which which was interesting. And then they closed indefinitely a month later. <laughs> oh really? That does sound <laughs> <Yes>. interesting. <laughs> You got any inside dirt that... Uh, oh, no. Abs- I wish okay. I did. Like, th- that's the extent of my funny pure food and wine story. But I did eat there. I did eat the raw lasagna. I had a dessert there that I loved. The desserts were divine, honestly. And But um, mm. other than that, that was my experience. Yeah. Mm. But it is interesting because I did just write a chapter in my forthcoming book about Raw veganism and wellness, and, mm-hmm. and that whole diet culture thing in veganism, and so I did had to have to just dive into all the the cookbooks. Yeah. B- right before that vegan came out, it was good timing for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm assuming we've all watched the Netflix series now. Yes.
3: Oh, you know I have.
1: Yes, I know you have, Alicia. Have you seen the whole thing?
3: Netflix commissioned me to write about it, so I I did an oral history of the restaurant for them.
1: I saw that. It was great. And very, like, very enlightening. Okay, so I'm curious for your kind of general take on it. Were there any big opinions you had or takeaways, things that jumped out at you about that series?
3: I wish that it had focused on the food more. I felt like it really, Mm -hmm. really overlooked the entirety of the you know the kind of revolutionary aspect of the food there and that it was open for so long mm-hmm. and that it might still be open had this whole strange saga not occurred mm. because the you know the fact is is that it opened with Matthew Kenny as you know Sarma's chef partner and life partner at the time and he was you know a real kind of wunderkind of New York City dining in the nineties. And then they went raw together. And so it was kind of really combining that raw vegan moment with real culinary chops. And I think that they really overlooked that in the, in the documentary. I suppose it's not that interesting to other people. I am a food writer who focuses on vegan cuisine. So to me, that is the (laughs) most interesting aspect, but Mm -hmm. I, I think that it, it misses a lot in not having shown people that because that, to me, makes kind of more of a joke of, of Sarma's escapades with the guy. And that, I think, is is kind of a loss, but I understand its dramatic purposes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, let's talk a little more about this series. I feel like a lot
0: of people were really into the idea that this showed Sarma, the main character and the co-founder, to be this, like, hypocrite. Whether because she was with this crazy boyfriend of hers and they got caught by the cops because they ordered a cheese pizza from Domino's. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that, that seems to be one of the big sticking points for people and like kind of what made the story go so viral. Alicia, what are your thoughts on purity with respect to veganism?
3: I think that it's overrated. I mean, I'm a vegetarian now, so I can't mm-hmm. speak to vegan purity. You know, I, there's a really great piece in a book called Messy Eating, which is, mm-hmm. it's like it, interviews with academics who work in animal studies. I don't know if you've read it, but the there's a really great piece in there called, like, The Tyranny of Consistency, Mm-hmm. So I, and I think that that is something that sort of plagues people's ideas about what it would mean to start going in a more plant-based direction with their eating because mm-hmm. they think that it's going to be this complete overhaul of their life. They're never going to eat anything again right. that has a lot of nostalgic meaning for them. They're go, you know, they they're gonna upset their mother and their grandmother and you know, it's it's just gonna be this huge, Mess for them emotionally, mm-hmm. and and it is for me when I did go vegan for the first time, it was a strain, and I did have a lot of arguments in my life, you know, and yeah. people were hurt by it, and yeah. so that's a very real thing, and I think that when you, when people are so obsessed with the purity of of how they eat, that it it, it does a real disservice, and it, it keeps people from making choices that they might like to make. Because they feel that this kind of ideology and this label takes more importance than just making different choices most of the time. You know, defaulting to a vegan diet rather than making it the focal point of your existence. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I'll
3: say, so
0: I'm vegan, but I cheat for sweets.
3: Ooh.
0: I I had cake this weekend that was decidedly not vegan, but a thousand (laughs) percent delicious. I regret nothing. I feel like I get a lot of people who once they hear you're vegan, they don't know the difference between a diet and a religion a lot of yeah. the time. you know. So like I, I have cousins who will like hold up meat in front of me and be like, you can't have this. And I'm like, I could. I don't want it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. You yes. know,
0: because like so much of what the way that people talk about veganism is all about deprivation. And it's like there's such, such a focus on what a vegan can't, quote, can't eat and not on, you know, all the amazing, delicious foods that are naturally vegan. Yeah. What I appreciated about Sarma and what she was trying to do with pure food, which, you know, the, that restaurant opened in 2004. And I'm sure you remember what the discussion around vegan food then was very, very different. Mm -hmm. And the types of food that had been developed and normalized as vegan was was pretty paltry. You know, we've come a long way since then. So in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, she really was like a trailblazer. And it's also like, you don't have to go all the way vegan at At once. And just like underscore why we're talking about this on Hot Take is because veganism and having a more uh, a more plant based diet can do a lot to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. If the whole world went vegan tonight, uh, that would not solve the climate crisis, though. So it's just (laughs) it's it's one thing that you can do. And if you're able, do it. Try it. You might like Mm -hmm.
1: it. Yeah. This reminds me, actually, Alicia, of your piece on lionfish, which I loved. And and just, like, I don't know, the idea of, of why people choose certain diets and that if you are concerned about the environmental impact of your diet, that, like, sometimes the rules of any one di- diet, like, don't work across the board, which I think gets at this, like, tyranny of consistency thing, too. Uh-huh. I'm curious. I don't know. I think I'd like to have you kind of... Talk about that a little bit, like you know, what is lionfish and why were you thinking about eating it?
3: Right, so lionfish is an invasive species found in warm waters. So I'm I'm based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. It's also found around uh, Florida, and so a restaurant I love called Pio Pio here in, in town was doing a lionfish ceviche because. They cook with basically all local ingredients. It's really, really, really vegetarian and vegan friendly because they're so focused on using local produce. And they also use, you know, some local meat, usually rabbit and local sustainable fish. And so they were serving lionfish because it, it's it's an invasive species. It eats things it's not supposed to. It, it, it screws up the coral. The only way to really control the population is to eat it. I guess you could kill it and not eat it, but, you know. It just seems wasteful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was there at the restaurant and our friends were coming and I was like, I'm, you know, I'm going to eat this ceviche because... You know it's invasive, and I understand its purpose on a menu and you know I eat oysters because they're also really great environmentally um clean up water just really important and so i I thought I could do the lionfish in the same way, and then I couldn't do it because at some point, well, I think forever, you know I haven't eaten meat in eleven years, and that includes fish that have nervous systems um and so I I, I thought I could do it because I thought that I would put ecology above my kind of ethical stance. Or mm-hmm. I suppose at this point, it's more of like a spiritual stance against eating, eating things that have eyeballs and, and sentient existences. Uh, but I couldn't do it because I I just, for me, it, it just is, is something I don't do. it, And, and it, mm-hmm. it's not against like my religion and it, it or anything. It's just, you know, not not something I can consciously do mm-hmm. it, and feel good about. And and I think that when I wanted when I wrote that piece, I wanted, you know, I wanted omnivores mostly to understand that when people don't eat meat, sometimes it's it's really Goes deep into how they they feel and interact with the world, and and isn't necessarily about like being a better person, quote unquote. It's just a, it's just a motivation from their own conscience or or soul mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. And because people like to say, you know, oh, veganism isn't the best thing for the planet, blah blah blah. Like, and you know, I there are you know things that I eat locally because I think that's a good idea. I eat local oysters. I eat local cheese. I eat local eggs, I, you know, support those economies, but there, there's this idea that like vegans think they're saving the planet and think they're better than everybody else. And I mean, some do. But mm-hmm. uh, that's not the whole story, you know. Like there, there, it goes into this deeper strain of thought and this deeper strain of feeling as well. And I, you know, you're not supposed to really talk about your feelings.
1: <laughs> Shove them down. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I have to say that that tells me your commitment is a lot stronger than yours because I cheat for sweets. I also sometimes will cheat for spite. There's not much I won't do for spite. But over Thanksgiving, I ate some of the Thanksgiving turkey so that my mother was mad at my brother and my brother was mad at my mother. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I love that.
0: I love
1: it. <laughs> it may be a little sick, but you know what? Worth it. Worth it. Worth it. Okay, so you kind of touched on this uh, a moment ago, but I um, I want to talk a little bit more about the way that the particular type of veganism that Sarma seemed to to embrace was kind of this very upper-class, white, wellness slash diet focused kind of approach. Or maybe it's just how it was portrayed in the series. I'm curious because I think you had a little more direct experience with that restaurant than for sure I did. So, Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess I'm curious what you think about that in general. And then also this happens in climate too. Like how do we keep climate stuff or veganism or any of these kinds of things from being co-opted by either kind of the purists who make it like, too hard for anybody to want to do it and seem like really unfun or the people that are like let's make it an expensive thing let's make money off of it you know
3: mm. <laughs> um. well yeah raw veganism is such an inefficient way of eating <laughs> that like yeah. it's you know it's not sustainable if you're in new york you know why are you eating mangoes in the winter why are you eating avocados in the winter why are you relying yeah. on dates it's it's a really, really, really inefficient diet. It requires so much food. Like if you if you see people on like Instagram reels who still are eating a raw vegan diet, like they're they'll be like, Look at what I eat in a day, and it's like fifty apples <laughs> or bananas or something. And it's just like, dude, if you just ate like a piece of toast, you wouldn't need all those apples. Yeah. So yeah, it it's an expensive way of eating because it requires like so much volume. It's a time expensive way of eating because you're like dehydrating different things if you Mm -hmm. want a cracker and like there are people who are like, oh, if you just blend a smoothie on high in your Vitamix, it'll get a little bit warm. So it's like having soup in the winter. It's just like a very <laughs> intense way of existing, and you know. But at the, on the other side of the coin, too, that right now there's a big carnivore movement, which which is very similar.
1: There you know. Is. Um,
3: yes, there is. <laughs> What's that about? Tell us more. I'm curious. Oh my gosh! So people are just eating full-on steaks, livers, like organ, like you know. It's good to eat organ meat if you're going to eat meat, of course. They're cooking this first, right? Most of the time they're cooking it. Some people are eating it raw. There's raw liver and there is a lot of raw meat. There's a lot of eggs, like of every kind of animal. So it's, it's one of those diets that's like super excessive in like the other way from raw veganism which I think both ways are very questionable. I think raw veganism, of course, has its place. I mean, when it's summertime and, and you, it makes you feel good, go for it, you know. But um, I don't know if you've heard of Anne Wigmore, but she was a big proponent of this. And she she developed something called rejuvalac and she made all these enzyme soups. And there's actually still a school here in Puerto Rico with her name, but she really pioneered raw veganism and wheatgrass juices and that kind of thing as like a wellness thing. But she was also tried for quackery multiple times. And so it comes from a very strange place, I suppose. It's something that has, you know, it can appeal to anybody. I think that when we, whenever we talk about veganism uh, and and race or where we get we start to erase people when we that we otherwise wouldn't want to erase in, in yeah. this history even yeah. if it's if, if it's a bad history <laughs> yeah right. so it's it's just a very expensive very very consumerist way of existing to do raw veganism and, and so when it was having its moment it was having its moment mainly in California as you can understand like there was this guy Juliano in the late 90s who actually got rave reviews from Michael Bayer at the San Francisco Chronicle. Roxanne Klein did a cookbook with Charlie Trotter that I actually love. I think it's a really great technique cookbook called Raw. And it was, you know, when, when Pure Food and Wine opened in 2004, it was really coming into that moment when Raw veganism was a little bit being seen as a chic kind of style of dining. And no one thought it would last as long as it did, I don't think. Um, pure food and wine for 11 years. But mm-hmm. they proved the longevity. And I, my friend, Charlotte Druckmann, who I, I talked to for that oral history, her argument was, you know, it was a nice place that even if you weren't vegan, you wanted to go there. Like, it had a really good biodynamic wine list before that was a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It had good cocktails. They had a beautiful patio in Gramercy. It just felt nice. And the desserts were, like, people really will still talk about the desserts there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, it it had a real appeal in a way that these other raw vegan places maybe did not because – it was one such an anomaly in New York City where most vegan restaurants, other than like Candle 79, maybe on the Upper East Side, mm-hmm. were not fancy places. They were, you know, it was Kate's Joint in the East Village. It was teeny on the Lower East Side. It was, yeah. you know, it was, it was food swings in Williamsburg. It was, you know, it was not a chic thing. And so it made it kind of chic and it made it expensive, of course, but it really just changed the understanding of what vegan dining could be, um I know Amanda Cohen, who's the chef at dirt candy, she told me you know her she doesn't know if she would have been able to be so successful in dirt candy, which she opened in two thousand and eight, you know had she not worked at, both worked at pure food and wine and if pure food and wine hadn't set up the culture in a way that it was ready for you know vegetable dining
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you yeah, know I was gonna tell a vegan joke, but it was it was too cheesy. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs>
1: Um, <laughs> <I know.
0: laughs> but um, so bad vegan, I feel, is emblematic of something I see a lot when it comes to how pop culture or the media portrays vegans, which is like you have to look a certain way. You have to make yeah. a certain amount of money. It's a lifestyle choice and all of that. And it's also portrayed as very white. <laughs> um, yes. And that hasn't been my experience with it at all. There's a very old uh, black vegan tradition. Um, And based on your newsletter, Alicia, I don't think it's been your experience either. So where do you think this particular idea of veganism comes from? And how would you like to see media portrayals of veganism shift?
3: Yeah, it definitely comes from a desire to make veganism unappealing, I think. Mm -hmm. If you want to keep people from seeing veganism as something to take seriously, then make it a joke. Make it for Mm -hmm. skinny, rich, Mm -hmm. white ladies and something they do that doesn't really have any impact and is just frivolous and Mm -hmm. a diet and doesn't mean anything. Um, And so... When you go back and look at the history, you know, the 1960s, black veganism was on the rise and black vegetarianism as well. And there's so much documented evidence of this before, you know, 1971, which is when kind of meatless diets go mainstream to middle America, middle white America, through Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay. So that, that narrative got really solidified. And then you also see the erasure of of Asian influences. You know, like the first person who was making vegan cheeses in the West was a Chinese anarchist in France at the turn of the 20th century. And like the people who brought tofu to the U.S., you know, people talk about it as William Shirtliff and Akiko Ayogi who who were married in Japan and wrote the book of tofu in the 70s but there's like all this history of people bringing tofu to the states you know in the early 1900s so mm-hmm. there's there's this real whitewashing of all like what's known as alternative eating um Because the narrative of like hippie food starts with the whiteness of like the 60s and early 70s hippie movement. Mm -hmm. And I think that that just, you know, it does a real disservice to how we talk about it. It does a disservice to people's understandings. I mean, you know, there's uh, Margaret Robinson is a great vegan indigenous academic in Canada who has written about this and how, you know, this whitewashing of veganism allows for... People's food traditions to also be taken from them, you know. And I think mm-hmm. in decolonize your diet by by Luz Calvo, that's also present where, where they're they're Mexican American, and so this kind of like thing where people are like, well, veganism is a white thing, and like eating healthy is a white thing. Then it becomes like, okay, well, is processed American cheese and white bread and and hamburgers are those? indigenous foods to the Americas and it's like no <laughs> right. of course not <laughs> it's it's beans it's squash it's corn and so that narrative you know it takes people's traditions from them and it also keeps the people from understanding veganism or or vegetarianism as something open to everybody you know and so mm-hmm. that that's that's really problematic but i i do see that narrative shifting a little bit you know i i wrote how When I was writing for the Village Voice and and writing about vegan restaurants in New York, I saw Chinese Buddhist vegan meats in the freezer at Vegan's Delight at the end of the five train in a Jamaican store, you know, a Jamaican bodega that served I food. And so like for me, that's the tradition of veganism, especially in a city like New York, where everyone gets to mix their traditions. And so, like the the idea of veganism as like pure food and wine and sarma, like mm-hmm. uh, that is part of vegan history, of course, and it's an important part of it. But it is not the the entirety, and it, it's not even necessarily a, that significant a part. It's not a it's not a part that's touched more people than you know lentil patties mm-hmm. and rasta pasta. So yeah,
1: it's so yeah. funny because I feel like what you're describing about the way that vegans are often portrayed and also the reasons for it. It just reminds me so much of how environmentalists and climate activists are portrayed and why, too. It's like the I think the motivation is the same to sort of discredit and minimize. And I feel like a big part of that is the way that we see vegans show up and climate people show up in TV and film. Mm -hmm. I still think it's pretty common to see the, you know, hippy-dippy woo-woo crystal ant, <laughs> or like the the sort of shrill, colorless organizer. You
0: know, yeah. <laughs> Like Lisa Simpson, I think, is vegan now. Yeah,
1: exactly. So it's like, I, I don't know, I feel like part of it is that we need to see people who care about things like what they're eating, not just from a diet perspective, but from an environmental perspective and a justice perspective and a labor perspective and all of those things and people who care about the environment, not because they love polar bears, not there's anything wrong with that, but like because they're concerned about justice issues. I, I just I feel like we need to see People on TV and film and in media in general as kind of whole people who are just normal everyday people who also happen to be vegan or like happen to be working on climate or happen to talk about climate sometimes. And I'm curious if you guys have seen any examples of kind of good examples of representation in that in that way. I don't know, just what you think of that in general and why we're not seeing these things be more normalized, given that, like, out in the world, I feel like it's way less unusual, (laughs)
0: you know? I mean, I... I have thoughts. (laughs) I keep clamoring for a vegan cooking show. Yeah. You know, like everybody loves a good cooking show, like the Great British Breaking Show. Like they have a vegan week Mm -hmm. or something like Mm -hmm. that. And so I think we need more of that in veganism to show people and demystify that Like it's actually not that hard to cook vegan food. Mm -hmm. Like I think some people think that it has to be just so overly complicated or whatever. So like in, in some ways I feel like Sarma with Pure Food and Wine did a lot of good to normalize vegan food and show that it can be served in a restaurant and it can be, like, upscale or whatever. But also, like, a lot of people looked at, at food like Pure Food and Wine's menu and were just like, this is beyond me and I can't do this. This is too hard. That's how
1: I've always thought of vegan food. Like, I'm not yeah. I'm not a vegan or even a vegetarian. Don't stone me. Um, but <laughs> well, you eat, vegan meals, but eat vegan meals all the time. And I eat vegan meals all the time. And honestly, like, a lot of times that's what I will order at restaurants, partly because yeah. I'm, like, intimidated by cooking things that are plant-based, right. which is why, actually, uh, like, shout out to Alicia's newsletter. The recipes in there are great and, like, easy to follow and – Right. very good at breaking down that barrier I think for mm-hmm. for those mm-hmm. of us who are afraid
0: well I I think that one of the big problems with veganism and the way it's portrayed in the media I, I guess the conspiracy documentaries are kind of emblematic of this oh. yeah. where vegans mm-hmm. are like super and I'm talking about Cowspiracy, sea conspiracy where it's like they start with one totally well seemingly unrelated environmental issue and they follow this chain and then it's like well if everybody just went vegan we would solve this whole problem and it's like yeah. Here's the thing Like I was saying earlier, everybody going vegan is not going to solve the climate crisis. It is not going to get all the plastic out of the ocean. If you are able to go vegan, it will reduce your impact on the planet. And that is a good thing to do if you can do it. Eating more vegan meals definitely counts, and it is a good thing to do Mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. But you're not a horrible person (laughs) if you don't do it. Um, And, like, the way that these documentaries are set up, it's like there's this big you know, conspiracy against veganism. And while, yes, I do think there's some propaganda against it, I don't understand how you see the plastic patch in the ocean and don't wind up at the fossil fuel industry. Instead, you wind up right back at individual solutions. Which, again, if you can do it, good. But the other thing is that not everyone can right and that's where a lot of the vegan discourse gets really obnoxious like some people have allergies to nuts and it's not super safe for them to rely on beans to get all of their protein <laughs> yeah. so yeah, you know just I, I feel like I went a lot of different directions with that <laughs> but it ha- that <laughs> happens with there. the climate
1: stuff too though like I see people being like you should never fly and I'm like well, I'm you know definitely reducing the amount I fly for sure But, like, Mm -hmm. I'm married to someone who's not from this country. I have, like, family that depends on me that lives far away. I'm not independently wealthy and, like, entirely in control of my own work schedule. So, like, sometimes, (laughs) I, you know, I have to travel for work and, like, I don't know. I just feel feel like there is a little bit of a, a lack of understanding of the fact that, like, not everyone has... The absolute optimum number of choices available to them <laughs> in their life. Alicia, have you seen any like particularly good or bad examples of this, like either characters in sitcoms or like, I don't know, films or TV shows that, that look at this?
3: You know, I wish I had seen a good vegan on TV. <laughs> I've, I've never seen it. I've um, never seen it. It's terrible. I've never seen it. But, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, vegans do themselves a big... T- I mean, they're going to get mad at me again. They always get mad at me. Um, <laughs> it's like as a vegetarian, I am their biggest enemy. Yes. You know, as an ex-vegan yes. vegetarian. Um yes. You know, but I, I, I think that these kinds of... These documentaries do a disservice because you're pushing the wrong narrative. It's proven that the animal welfare... Aspect of this isn't motivating to a majority of people. So you have to take a different tack if you are trying to convince people to eat differently. But I think that human labor is not as significant a part of the discussion of why to stop eating industrial meat specifically. Um yes. for, for a lot of people. That those labor conditions, I think if we start to talk about them more, will really move the needle on a lot of people mm-hmm. who have this urge to cut back on meat, but don't really know how to do it. I think being open to giving people the opportunity to see where they can support smaller ranchers or butchers near them. You know, I don't, I'm not happy about it. I couldn't even eat the lionfish, but like, (laughs) you know, like living in, in some sort of reality is, is, is why we don't see portrayals of, of good vegans, of positive Vegans on on right. on TV and in movies because there's there's not this connection to reality and that for me that is why like my in my newsletter i do all vegan recipes every week and like and, and my approach to recipes is very much like you can have like an extremely simple but very elegant <laughs> thing on your table and it'll be plant-based and no one will really think about why because yeah. i think that that like mary said like the cooking show aspect is missing um, the thing that normalizes and makes it easy and makes it pretty is what's missing. You know, again, it, it's that I'm giving up everything I've ever known and making my life really difficult, yeah. kind of thing, instead of something that's inviting. Like, you know, there, these, yeah. these documentaries aren't an invitation. No, I mean, and again, exactly. this like
1: reminds me so much of the the climate discourse, which is mostly framed as like loss and scarcity and things you're going to give up, and not yes. as like world building and, like, opportunities to improve things, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I actually did appreciate that Sarma was an imperfect vegan and that they showed that and talked yeah. about that in the series. Yeah. You know, I don't think she actually ever broke her vegan vows, mm-hmm. but just to show her as an imperfect person, I think was, like, kind of humanizing to vegans in a way. So, in a way, Sarma is probably the best vegan I've seen. (laughs) That's (laughs) hilarious. Good vegan,
1: in fact. (laughs) She's not a bad vegan. She's a bad business owner. Maybe a bad person who, like, doesn't give a shit about her employees, but that doesn't make her unique in American business. She's more like a gullible vegan. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She's not even a bad person. She's just gullible as hell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, Alicia, before we let you go, I have to, um, as a gift to Mary, I'm going to tell you a dad joke. Are you ready?
0: There, sure. There. Okay, you're not supposed to warn
1: them, Amy. <laughs> I can't help it. I can't <laughs> help it. All right. What does a vegan zombie eat?
3: I've heard this before, but I don't I don't have a response to this. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. Punchline. Are you ready? Brains. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. yes. All
1: right, Mary, I just gave myself dork chills um that's oh really something oh my gosh you just gave yourself a wedgie <laughs> <laughs> awesome um thank you so much alicia for coming on and, and talking to us we'll definitely stick thank a link you to so much. your newsletter in the show yeah. notes do you want to tell people the name of your book that's coming out and when it's coming and where they can find it
3: it's a um cultural and culinary history of vegetarian and vegan cuisine in the u.s since 1971 awesome.
1: Oh, that's amazing. So all these missing pieces of history will be found in your book. I did try to put them
3: together, yes.
1: That's (laughs) awesome. That's awesome. Great. Thanks Thanks again and um, have a good night. Thank you. Okay, so we talked about these carnivore people, meat men, a little bit with Alicia, and our producer Ray was furiously typing notes to us during the conversation to to try to school us on this trend. So we thought we'd have him just come on and tell us a little bit more about it. Ray, welcome to the show.
2: (laughs) Ray, (laughs) thanks so much for having me. It's it's weird to be on this side of the uh... of the mic. Yeah. (laughs)
1: All right. So Uh tell us about this. Who are these people and what are they doing?
2: Yeah. When it came up, I just, I realized that I had gone down this social media, like rabbit hole for a couple months where I just saw these videos popping up of these really buff, mostly white guys who are advocating a carnivore diet. And they kind of, like, make all of these connections between their diet and their physique and, like, you know, their virility. And so there are a couple guys. <laughs> there are a couple main, main, I would, we could say culprits. There's a guy named Brian Johnson who goes by the name Liver King. and And his videos are mainly, like, him doing incredible kind of, like, workout feats and he like puts his whole family through them and it's, it's like a, they, he eats like 13 burgers at lunch and he eats a raw liver every day. And it, it's kind of like, it, it's almost like performance theater. Um, mm. And there, yeah, there was an article a few weeks ago about his rise and how he was living this lifestyle. And then like, some marketing firm helped him put together a social media profile that has now has like millions of followers, and so he's. I would say like he is one of the main people, and then there is this guy who goes by the name Carnivore MD, and his name is Paul Saladino, and he's a psychiatrist who's been on the Joe Rogan show, and so like oh. he he goes a step further. And saying that, like, there's actually nothing good that you get from vegetables. That, like, vegetables are poison. Fuck vegetables.
0: (laughs) Do you know how much your brain suffers when you don't have vegetables? This is,
1: like, a self-perpetuating problem here for him.
0: (laughs) I gotta ask, how many of these meat men... We're at the Capitol on January 6th. Just
2: ballparking. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had numbers for that. <laughs> I'm going to go with
0: all of them. I'm going to go with all of them until I can be proven wrong.
1: It's,
2: it's like this weird oh, intersection man. of like meat, like like this rejection of vegetables as being like a rejection of People telling you what to do or how to live your life.
1: Do you know what this reminds me of? And I can't believe I just yeah. thought of it. But um, I, I did this story like ages ago about how there's been this this cultural effort in Japan to try to get men to embrace the role of fatherhood more. And one of the things that has resulted from this like kind of cultural propaganda campaign that the government's been running for ages is the emergence of so called vegetable eating men, which are like men who are okay with being stay at home dads. And I, I remember I, like, I interviewed this woman who was a professor there who was like, yeah, yeah. Like I asked my students if they prefer meat eating men or vegetable eating men. And like half of my female students now say that they prefer vegetable eating men. And I was like, this whole thing is so weird to me. <laughs> like,
0: that
1: is a false dichotomy. but it was, It was being framed in this very like um, gendered way around meats and vegetables that I had not, I hadn't really heard of. And I hadn't really thought of it again until, until right now in this conversation.
0: (laughs) Honestly, what it reminds me of is that that phenomenon of like white supremacists guzzling milk on camera, because it's like, you know. People of color are more likely to be lactose intolerant, and that was how they wow, I just thought it was because, because it was that white
3: face. that's hilarious
0: <laughs> well, I'm just glad you're not one of them you know i I, I wouldn't want you to faint somewhere because you you've you got scurvy oh, or something that was
1: that that would be hilarious if scurvy came back
0: <laughs> <laughs> because of the meat
1: man. <laughs> <laughs> Why not?
2: I guess I guess in our water world future, maybe. <laughs> yeah.
0: Everybody's a pirate.
1: Wow. Wow. All right. Well thanks for that thank you for that little uh, explainer, Ray.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah.
1: Now it's time for a little segment we like to call the A Billionaire. So who's today's lucky bachelor? (laughs) Well, you know,
0: Jeff Bezos has been a little bit uh, unhinged lately. So let's,
1: yeah. Let's burn Bezos. That's going to be the one. Yeah. 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 He deserves it, I think. Let's see. What should we talk about first? Maybe the fact that he's been trying to crush unions (laughs) for a really long time. (laughs) Well he kind of got crushed by a union. He it? did. He finally lost that. But um but he's been firing employees for being pro union, which is illegal by the way, in the wake of of losing their first battle against unionization. Amazon has been really like going on the offensive to try to stop any other factories or warehouses from unionizing. I don't know if if you watch any kind of streaming content that delivers ads, Mary, but these ads are fucking everywhere where they're like, I'm so glad I work at Amazon because when I had a baby, I got three months of paid maternity leave and stuff like that.
0: (laughs) I did not see that.
1: Yeah. A lot of like, it's amazing to work at Amazon ads all over the place right now. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah.
0: But the thing is... Amazon's been at this for a minute because Mm -hmm. remember when they fired um, all of the people organizing for Amazon to get better on climate in like 2019? That's right. They did.
1: That's right. Yes, they did. They did.
0: This was not in their warehouses. These were um, like the software developers who were like, this company is not who it says it is when it comes to the climate Mm -hmm. and we we demand better. And yeah, they got straight fired. They did.
1: Yeah. They got fired right after doing... Um, interviews with the Washington Post, actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> which Jeff mm-hmm. Bezos also owns, by the way, a weird little circle there. Yeah. yeah. So he's been tweeting a bunch about uh, policy stuff, which has some people wondering if maybe he's running.
0: What is he saying about policy? though? He's mostly
1: trying to um, claim that inflation is not being caused by corporations, not like like their fair weight in taxes and also that it has nothing to do with wages and you know there's a, there's a lot to be debated there but i think i think all of this has kind of been prompted by what's happened to amazon in the pandemic which is this very weird thing where like on the one hand their business is booming because so many people were ordering things online during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, they have been hit by this labor shortage that everybody else has been hit with, right? And um, you know, it's like people who are fed up with bad working conditions and shitty wages are right. saying no. And people yeah. like Jeff Bezos don't really know how to handle that. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And it's been coming to light that like folks have been having to like pee in bottles and drivers are like held to these crazy standards. You know who I think has done a really good job of covering Mm. that is uh, John Oliver. Yes.
1: Yes. I agree. I agree. He also, like our boy Elon, claims to be this total climate hero and yet is investing heavily in personal space tourism, a climate disaster. In the oh my gosh,
0: yes. I, wasn't there a day where he and Elon went to space at the same time and yeah. we were all kind of hoping, like, just stay out there?
1: Yes, both in these, like, weird yeah. penis rockets. I mean, it, the, the, like, sword fight analogy was, like, two on the nose. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, he yeah. started this big climate fund a while ago, but everyone was like, cool, or you could just pay taxes, um.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Well, the thing is, like, at the time that he started that climate fund, Trump was in office, so paying taxes, That's I don't necessarily true. True. Go, that would have gone to climate solutions. Mm-hmm. And to to be fair, he started that fund with ten billion dollars, which is one of the biggest, I believe, the biggest investment in philanthropy and climate for a long time mm-hmm. or ever. Actually, in a in a way, his fund did a lot of good. But the thing is like $10 billion to Jeff Bezos is like $10 to me. And this is why. So I I tweeted a while back that you can't be a billionaire and a climate hero at the same time. And I I still have people showing up in my mentions being like, what about this billionaire? What about this billionaire? What about that billionaire? Mm -hmm. That does not mean to say that any billionaire in the world, that no billionaire ever has ever done anything for climate. Mm -hmm. But if they actually wanted to be a climate hero... They would not be a billionaire anymore. There's so many climate solutions out there that are underfunded. There's no way in the world you're running around here with a billion motherfucking dollars. That's
1: right. Well, and also I've written about this before, but I feel like it bears repeating that like the problem with billionaires funding their own personal pet climate solutions is that they have a tendency to fund the things that will maintain the status quo power systems. So this exactly. is why you see, who do you see lining up to fund geotechnology and carbon capture? The billionaires. It's it's Bezos, it's Musk, it's Bill Gates, you know, <laughs> it's Chris Sacca. It's all the tech bro billionaires who are like, What can we fund that, you know, we get to pick that it gets to be like innovative in this way that they like? It's a technology solution. It's not social change or cultural change or any of these things that might actually question why we even have billionaires anymore. Um, Yeah. And it's (laughs) like, you can't tell
0: me that you care about Earth when you're out here going to Mars. No,
1: no, no,
0: no, no. Right. Yeah. And I i mean, like I think Richie's on the moon. That's
1: right. I think it's also worth pointing to this stat that the top 1% is responsible for 21% of emissions growth. So if you are a billionaire who is flying in a private plane all over the place and generally have a massive outsized carbon footprint, not just your, with your own personal um, lifestyle choices, which you know we've talked about, how problematic that can be, but like you know, in the ways that you're incentivizing certain things with your business, a la amazon um <laughs> you know yeah, or space tourism, that has an enormous impact way beyond you know whatever um money you're putting into into philanthropy, so right
0: it's bad enough. You got a private jet. Now you're, you got a private spaceship. Like, sweetie, look at your
1: choices. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. It is true. I, don't know. I can't imagine. Uh, but honestly, I'm like, man, if Jeff Bezos was a candidate, like, would he get the same, you know, but he's so successful in business, um, crowd as Trump. I don't know. He's not
0: as charismatic. No,
1: well, it's just, but it's funny to me because I'm like Jeff Bezos actually has been successful in business. Trump is like a massive failure on that front, but more charismatic.
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah, Trump is way more charismatic because it's it's not it's not about the truth; it's about the story. That's
1: right. That is right. So. Yes. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
0: Hot Take is a Crooked Media production.
1: It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jules Bradley. Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Thamali Kodakara is our consulting producer. And our executive producers are Mary Anais Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westerbelt.
0: Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landis for production support and to Amelia Montooth for digital support.
1: You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take. Sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.